Hello again, and welcome to Perspectives with Nilo. In recent months, we've become accustomed to Russia and its supporters blaming their invasion of Ukraine on NATO expansion and US interference in the region, even though Western nations and Ukraine have repeatedly rejected this narrative. Similarly, in the case of Taiwan, the Chinese Communist Party and their supporters blame the United States as the sole agent for escalation of tensions in the Taiwan Strait. In a recent article by Michael Swain of the Quincy Institute, published in the National Interest, entitled The Worrisome Erosion of the One China Policy, he frames present tensions as arising over the US refusing to conform to its own One China Policy and instead increasing symbolic and substantive support for Taiwan, thereby provoking China into taking greater escalatory actions. Swain's article was taken to task by Brian Hugh in New Blue magazine in a response entitled Never Mind China's Drills, Quincy Institute article views America as sole agent of rising tensions. Brian is one of the founding editors of New Blue magazine and a non-resident fellow at the University of Nottingham's Taiwan Studies program. His writing has been published in The Washington Post, The Nation and The Guardian, among many others, and his TV appearances have included Al Jazeera, the BBC World Service, Democracy Now! and CNN. We're very grateful that he's agreed to be our guest on this episode of Perspectives with Nilo. So, Brian, uh, thank you very much for doing this interview, and you're very welcome to Perspectives with Nilo. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for uh, looking me up for the interview. Before we break down some of the points you make in, in your article, what, were, what are Swain's uh, core arguments? Um, so, particularly Swain and the Quincy Institute claim the U.S. needs to do more to engage with China, that the current U.S. policy has broken from past standards, and so China is only reacting to the U.S. And so this is kind of a stance that I would then argue against in that this is a view that really puts the blame solely on the U.S. Uh, so it takes two to tango. The U.S. and China are both contributing in some ways to tensions. Yeah. But then this really just views China as only reactive to the U.S. in a way that as though if the U.S. just backs down the issue of Taiwan, the issue of China will just completely go away, and then China will back down. So it's a very kind of America-centric view. America is the only agent that's doing anything. And, and when he talks about this uh, erosion of the one-China policy, um, I mean... I was confused by that comment because um, I think that there are many one-China policies, and from what my understanding is of of the U.S. one-China policy, uh, Washington uh, does not take a position on Taiwan's sovereignty. Isn't that correct? Um, Yeah, that's correct. And so it is quite strange that Swain does not seem to even know the U.S. policy. Uh, Every country in the world has a different one-China policy, but oftentimes China will frame it as though there's one one one-China policy that's shared internationally. And then China will often try to conflate its own one-China principle with the U.S. one-China policy or the one-China policy of other countries. And Swain just takes this narrative completely. And it's, it's actually quite surprising. I mean, I've been on air with him. He did not seem aware of this, actually, that you know, U.S. one-China policy is not the same as China's one-China uh, principle. And so he just kind of takes it there. And then the uh, U.S. one-China principle uh, versus policy debate has been going on for a long time. People are very aware of this. But then when it comes to even just U.S. one-China policy, Swain does not seem to be aware of what he even says regarding Taiwan's position in the world that does not take a stance. And so he thinks it does. And so it's quite perplexing there. And, and you make some interesting uh, points in the article uh, about how when you know, major powers come to agreements, it's because those agreements are mutually beneficial. And uh, we can expect powers to erode these agreements sometimes as well, uh, depending on, on, on current circumstances. Do you want to say a little more about that as well in, in, in the context of this situation? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it's a kind of a strange view there too, with, which I think, for example, he views the one China policy as though it were international law, as though, for example, if just the US conforms to it, then everything is okay. And that China then is actually uh, in the right by seeking to punish the US over its violations of its own policy. And so that doesn't make a lot of sense. And so if the US and China come to an agreement too that disregards Taiwan's voices, where Taiwanese people's views on their future, and this never comes up in this at all. Uh, this is an agreement by major powers. It's a geopolitics and countries are caught in between are, are just at the mercy of these larger powers. And so that worldview I find to be problematic. Uh, but then even then, I mean, these major powers are competing with each other. If they come to an agreement, it is for the mutual benefit of both, but then they will seek to contest each other within the framework of the agreement. And so this is precisely what we see with this tension between the US and China, which they're saying accusations back at each other. And China will then frame the US as violating one China policy as breaking the law and its own actions as justified. And that's just geopolitics. You're looking for pretext to justify their actions using international law or what they claim to be internationally agreed upon uh, conventions. But then it's not the case, actually. And I think just it's a basic misunderstanding of world geopolitics in which it's not as though if one major superpower uh, conforms to an agreement, then suddenly the other one will not contest it at all and everything will go back to peaceful times. Uh, and, and you mentioned um, the one China policy versus uh, the one China principle there uh, earlier. And um, I noticed that, uh, that on, on China's side, they are, I think, taking more liberties or taking more opportunities to replace uh, the one China policy with the one China principle more and more. And, and one instance of this was uh, at the Munich Security Conference back in February. Uh, Wang Yi, who is, of course, China's top diplomat, uh, he was asked if, if he could uh, reassure the audience that a military escalation over Taiwan was, issue was not imminent. And his reply was to, of course, blame Taiwan independence forces for undermining peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait, which he said, uh, we must oppose Taiwan independence and observe the one China principle. The latter, which he remarked, was a consensus of the international community. And again, I think uh, I've spoken about the Carnegie Institute article on, on the many uh, variants of the one China policy and but uh, it turns out that uh, only like 51 countries in the world uh, have positions that support one China whereas there's like about 181 uh, countries in total that, that are maybe ambiguous on it and so on so but uh, I guess my, my question sorry for being long-winded but my question is the China side of this whole thing and and this ongoing uh, kind of attempt to conflate the one China policy and the one China principle. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because we often talk about strategic ambiguity regarding the U.S. stance on Taiwan, that the U.S. does not take a committed stance uh, to keep its options open in that sense, but also to prevent China from uh, kind of provocatively acting against Taiwan preemptively with the view that the U.S. will immediately respond or is obligated to respond. But then this is also a case in which China is using a lot of this ambiguity around this policy. Uh, they're creating a kind of ambiguity regarding it in order to kind of put its own agenda. And so this is why then you have one China principle and policy being conflated, uh, but then acting as though this were some kind of agreed upon international standard when that's not the case actually. And then many countries are uncommitted in their stance on Taiwan. And so it's actually quite successful though, because I think they even will manage to get someone like Biden to misspeak and conflate his own country's policy with that of China's. And so it is actually quite a successful stratagem there. And so it erodes the kind of international space that one has, but uh, it's been ongoing, so it doesn't surprise that you would see these comments. I suppose they're in it for the long game, and uh, they, they have a pretty large uh, propaganda organization that will reiterate and repeat this over and over, right? 
Um, that's right. Also, I think that their uh, diplomatic staff are pretty on the same page. And so I think there is an awareness that this is a useful way to kind of really erode the international space that Taiwan has. And that's why we see this. And uh, the notion of uh, Taiwan-China tensions being the sole fault of the U.S. Um, is also uh, a sentiment that's constantly repeated by, I guess, Chinese state media and, and their mouthpieces. And you note that in, in Swain's case, the, uh, there's no consideration, and you mentioned it earlier, for the wishes of the Taiwanese people, um, and they're treated kind of like a geopolitical chess piece. Um, I want to ask you, what's the feeling in Taiwan about the role of the U.S. in, in this whole uh, issue? Do, do people feel the U.S. are supporting Taiwan, are exploiting Taiwan, or, or something, something else? Yeah, I mean, I think Taiwan historically has had a lot of pro-U.S. views. Um, for example, just the historic relation that the U.S. backed the Chiang Kai-shek administration and regime, rather, uh, in the dictatorial rule of the Changs for decades. But uh, although that is something that the U.S. did for many countries, backing right-wing dictatorships to counter communism, there's still, there's still actually many positive views of the U.S., as, for example, Taiwan security grantor from China. And so then uh, there's a historical relationship, too, in which many, for example, Taiwanese people will go and study abroad in the U.S. and come back and, and so forth. And so that country was very positive views of the U.S. Uh, but what's interesting now is that particularly as uh, we see these tensions rising following the war in Ukraine as well, uh, there's this kind of doubt about the U.S. at the pan-blue camp, the KMT, the historically uh, pro-unification party that was a former authoritarian party, which was backed by the U.S. for all these decades during the authoritarian period, is now trying to sow doubt about the reliability of the U.S. because it does not like to see strengthening relations between the U.S. and Taiwan under the Tsai administration, which is an administration of the DPP, the Democratic Progressive Party, which is the center-left party that emerged from the democracy movement. And so then the attempt is to depict the U.S. as unreliable, as only seeking to use Taiwan that potentially would turn Taiwan into a munitions stockpile or a place for landmines because of its militarization or buildup with China. And so one also sees voices like those amplified by Swain or people that view themselves on the progressive left in the West, which is ironic because the KMT is, of course, the former authoritarian party. It's a right-wing party and so forth. Yeah, yeah but some, some people would say as well that um, sometimes the U.S., uh, doesn't support Taiwan, for example, finding a seat or a position at WHO, right, World uh, Health Organization, or, you know, maybe having a voice or an observer position at the UN that, you know, the US haven't, the US have said they would support Taiwan, but ultimately it doesn't happen. Yeah, I mean, it goes to a certain extent. Um, particularly now, there's a debate between substantive and symbolic means of support for Taiwan. Uh, for example, substantive would be arms deals or trade agreements, cementing the economic or military relation between Taiwan and the U.S. and firmer grounds. But then uh, symbolic might be changing the name of Taiwan's representative office, for example, from Taipei Economic Cultural Office to Taiwan Economic Cultural Office. And there's a debate then is that, is that advisable? Because it pokes China and they might react. However, uh, it doesn't actually do anything apart from symbolically supporting Taiwan. And so particularly then regarding Taiwan's relation in international organizations that it's often excluded from, such as the World Health Organization, the International Civil Aviation Organization, or the UN, and so forth, uh, the U.S. support goes to a certain extent. For example, the U.S. did pass legislation uh, against Taiwan losing further allies, saying that this will allow for pressuring these countries to maintain ties with Taiwan. And at the same time, there's not formal diplomatic recognition from uh, the U.S. either. And so it goes to a certain extent, but the U.S. definitely does actions, but it doesn't cross a certain line. And I think the attempt is to avoid China retaliating if it does. 
As regards of uh, reactions to political visits and escalation of tensions and so on, um, I'm not sure if discussing what's an appropriate reciprocal response, this is, was, was something I guess touched also maybe in, in your article, what's an appropriate reciprocal response to a political visit is a valid notion to discuss. Uh, as people in Taiwan may think, you know, Taiwan is an independent country and any response is inappropriate. In other words, people should be able to visit Taiwan if Taiwan invites them. Uh, but uh, you, you make the point in the article that China could try to build positive relations with Taiwan uh, instead of running military drills, right? For example, in response to the Nancy Pelosi visit, they could have maybe tried to ha have their own visit with Taiwan or engage in, in further dialogue. Uh, so uh, this, this possibility of further outreach from the PRC to Taiwan, um, I mean, why do you think they don't do that? Yeah, I mean, I think part of it is the current administration that is administration of the DPP, the historically pro-independence party. And so China would then frame it as we're not going to do anything with this party in power because it's the party that they don't want to communicate with. And so I think they're trying to affect Taiwanese electoral politics in favor of the KMT. Uh, and so it's interesting then that China then responds with military drills, and the drills are often a rehearsal or aimed at giving troops practice uh, for a blockade, for an evasion, those kind of scenarios. But uh, I mean, then reciprocal responses, someone like Spain will argue then that this is a reciprocal response uh, because the U.S. is at fault. But then one notes that the U.S., for example, did not respond with military drills directed at Taiwan when you do have Chinese officials visiting Taiwan under the Ma administration, the previous administration, which was a presidential administration of the KMT. And so then one has this, and uh, the tit-for-tat escalation then becomes a military escalation. Uh, and so it's ironic, too, because I don't think China is exactly winning hearts and minds through military drills here. But if it actually focused more on soft power or economic outreach, it could potentially you know, have Santa gain more ground in Taiwan in that way. It's ironic. And uh, so, you, so you think they are more sympathetic to building relations with the KMT uh, rather than the DPP. In that regard, uh, Ma Yingzhou did recently visit China. Um, but I, I'm not so sure that uh, his, his visit was all that productive in gaining the hearts and minds of Taiwanese based on the things he said and the engagements he had in China. Or, or how do you read that? Yeah, that's right. Um, so, for example, he referred to Taiwanese as Chinese during his visit. Um, he also did not mention the ROC or what his job title was as president uh, because of the sensitivity as well. And so that was kind of scoffed at, particularly among the uh, kind of more DPP-aligned people. But then, particularly for the more KMT-aligned camp, uh, there's a very polarized reception in terms of uh, the kind of re reception between them and people who are more DPP-aligned. And so, for example, they do view this as a way to try to cement peace with China, you know, that this was effective, and that Ma going there was actually able to dial back tensions. And then I think the DPP would counter that, well, these drills happen anyway, despite this visit. And so they'd argue otherwise. In terms of, though, um, visit, visits and the reaction of the CCP to um, other countries visiting, uh, I noticed when EU country officials visit Taiwan, um, you know, there's many visits. There's been many visits recently. Um, maybe not prime ministers, but uh, certainly senior officials. Um, these visits don't seem to provoke a military response from China. And similarly, we had uh, the Guatemala president uh, visit Taiwan recently. And while his visit was slammed by China, there, there were no military drills. Uh, in other words, it's only seemingly U.S. visits that caused China to, to get upset. Is, is that a correct observation? Um, I think that's true, but uh, it is quite interesting in that respect. Um, for example, I do think the U.S. as the world hegemon in that sense often will set the kind of Overton window, what is possible politically. And so then having uh, Speaker Pelosi visit, for example, and then afterwards this meeting between Simon McCarthy, that really throws open the, the window for other visits by other 
other politicians of other countries. Mm-hmm. And so it does depend on what rank. I mean, I think that if one has, let's say, a head of state visiting, then one will see a response from China. Uh, but it also depends on what country and so forth, what, how much military stake does it have in the region. Mm-hmm. And so actually in response, um, I mean, for example, with the, the EU visits and so forth, that's been on the increase. One has seen more visits by EU government officials. And one also does see military action, for example, sailing ships through the Taiwan Straits for EU countries that have military presences and navies and can project power to the Asia Pacific. But then uh, China does not respond as much. So, so really, as you said, uh, maybe it's because U.S. is seen as setting the lead and yeah. therefore they're the one they really have to, to react to. One of the observations I think uh, a lot of commentators um, uh, talk about recently um, is that um, all these kind of alliances uh, between either Russia and China or, you know, other, you know, Iran and, and China and so on, it's not so much about what they have in common, but it's more about the fact that the U.S. is the common enemy. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think these are relations of convenience in that sense. And I think particularly for the U.S. and Europe and so forth, I mean, there's history going back to you know, World War II and beyond of, of links and so forth. And so China and the countries that it aligns with sometimes do not have the same interests. And I think this is particularly visible with the kind of awkward relation between China and Russia at present uh, with the invasion and so forth. For example, did China actually have awareness ahead of time of the invasion or did just Putin launch it and throw them under the bus in some way? And now they have become closer aligned. And I think China particularly wants to build parallel institutions to the US to avoid reliance on US institutions. And so this then kind of dovetails with that ambition. But then these are not always uh, these are relations that are subject to very much flux because they're based on shared geopolitical interests, but then kind of building a longer term relation around firmer bedrock, that's actually kind of a question. And particularly when these are authoritarian regimes, then the interests of the leader are very easily come into conflict. And so I think particularly China and Russia is the kind of big players here that is, is quite visible. Uh, some commentators make the point that China will, will never launch a military invasion of Taiwan because a full-scale war in the Taiwan Strait would have a huge impact on their economy and uh, indeed the world economy as well. Uh, however, depending on, on the rhetoric by politicians and the media, China may feel the need to conduct military drills or blockades to keep up uh, a face and, and not appear to be weak. Uh, and I think this is something you, you alluded to in, in, in a recent interview. And of course, um, there's a whole lot of dangers with, with them doing that. Um, I know that, as I said, these, these are points you uh, discussed recently. Do you want to comment on, on that line of thought? Absolutely. And so I think it's quite interesting because uh, China would stand to lose quite a lot from invasion of Taiwan. And I think oftentimes there's this kind of fuzzy abstraction of discussing a Taiwan invasion. Uh, for example, troop estimates of losses for China, a CSIS war game simulated that as 70,000, but there are accounts that are higher. And so China's not fought a war in 40 years, and 70,000 is a really brutal death toll. That's more. That's significantly more than death toll in Ukraine, for example. Uh, and this would be the largest naval invasion since uh, D-Day, uh, beachhead invasion. And the economic impact would be massive. Uh, China's economy was slowing before COVID-19. Uh, China's reliant on Taiwan for semiconductors. Uh, but then also just that there are deeply interlinked economies, and uh, Taiwan's economy is large enough that just a crisis there would send the world into a kind of uh, economic crisis. And so when one factors in China, the impact would be very large, and that could potentially lead to a loss of legitimacy for the CCP. But then China does want to kind of make its uh, anger known through drills. That's still dangerous in that, for example, let's say you have an accident, and then that gets blown up in the Chinese media. And then there's calls from nationalists for retribution. And then the Chinese leadership does have to respond to them because it does need to maintain political power. Uh, and then one might have scenario in which you have this kind of irrational action taking place. So that is dangerous. But then 
I also think that particularly from the West, uh, it cannot always just be a pattern of responding to threats by threats either, looking for ways to avoid giving China pretext or dialing back tensions, or even giving China off-ramps to express anger, but then it amounts to nothing. I mean, that's also, I think, worth considering. Uh, kind of in, in relation to all that too, there was a, a recent art article in The Spectator magazine. Uh, it was, the title was Why China Might Attack Taiwan, written by a guy called Patrick Porter, who's a, a professor of international security and strategy at the University of Birmingham. And one of the things he said was the notion that if only the West shows resolve, China won't risk its prosperity or will postpone aggression indefinitely is a liberal daydream. What he said. Um, what do you think of that point, that that position or that viewpoint? I think uh, war is not inevitable, and so when it is discussed as though inevitable, that actually does raise the chances for actual conflict breaking out. But it's also true, I think, a firmer stance will deter China, knowing that it does suffer uh, consequences. I mean, particularly China, as it seeks to replace the U.S. as the world hegemon, uh, does want prestige, and so it wants to avoid being seen as the one that's breaking the rules-based international order. And so I think that actually a show of force is showing China what it would lose in terms of an invasion of Taiwan as though it's not as though nobody would care and it would just be able to happen quietly. I think that's important, actually. And so I think uh, it might not be the only thing that prevents a war from happening, uh, but I think it, is, it does actually help in terms of staving off an actual shooting war breaking out. Okay. In terms of the chances of finding a middle ground between like Taiwan and China, uh, the ideologies are so different between totalitarianism and democracy. Do you think a middle ground is, is, is realistic at all in this situation? Um, in the long run, it's a good question. However, I do think that particularly Western powers are often quite fine with relations with authoritarian regimes as long as it benefits their uh, political interests. And so, for example, backing Chiang Kai-shek, for example, from the U.S. and, and so forth. So I actually do think that the, uh, I mean, just one looks at the Asia-Pacific, let's say Thailand. Thailand is close to the U.S. It's a monarchy. Uh, it's authoritarian. And so there is that. I do think there's some way of kind of accommodating at the end of the day, but it also is uh, the danger, particularly with China, is that with Xi Jinping now having secured a third term and hoping for lifetime rule, perhaps his interest was not the same as the public uh, of China even. Uh, so having a crisis in which you can expand your power, maintain power, that might be something that he does. And as power centralizes in the hands of one person, the decision making of the overall apparatus is not as rational because it's not even wisdom of the crowd. It's, uh, the party is not a democracy, obviously, but even then it's not just one person. But then as one person is calling more and more shots, you have echo chambers build up. And so that's perhaps what we saw in Russia with uh, Ukraine as well and why there'd be such an invasion. And so I think that's a danger here. And by echo chambers, you mean he's surrounding himself with people that agree with him who are not going to ever tell him, oh, maybe you should think about this other side of the story and a and, and negative that could happen here. Because they don't want to appear maybe disloyal or be wrong or, or upset him, and therefore he never hears the other side of the story. Absolutely. And so even with the phenomenon of, let's say, wolf warrior diplomats, uh, where are very vocal and, and uh, hyperbolic in their rhetoric, oftentimes it is that they're seeking promotion, they're seeking to impress their superiors. And so that also increases the tensions. But then that's the danger, that he surrounds himself with psychophants, uh, people are loyal to him, he purges potential successors, or people that might criticize him or have different viewpoints. And so then this leads to this kind of erroneous perception of the world. And so that's, I think that's the real danger here. My thanks again to Brian Hugh for joining us on Perspectives with Nilo. And you can follow Brian on Twitter at Brian Hugh. That's B-R-I-A-N-H-I-O-E. And also check out the article in question at newbloomag.net. We've linked all the details on our blog site, as well as some additional links and references if you wish to dive deeper into today's topic. You can find it all at pwnilo.com. 
Perspectives with Nilo is also available on most podcast outlets, including Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud. And you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Well, that's it for the moment. Until the next time, thank you for listening. Slánagsbanacht. <laughs>